and we will look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. Isaiah 10, 5 through 11. We're moving through Isaiah each Sunday during the summer. We started last summer. We'll keep going, most likely, unless the Lord redirects us through August. And that'll be it for Isaiah for this year. Last week we saw that God is in control even over bad things. We saw that God used the nation of Assyria like a parent uses a paddle to discipline their children. He is so sovereign, so powerful, so in control, he can use an entire nation to bring about his will. Today, we're going to see the situation from Assyria's point of view, the paddle. It's going to remind us just how interesting and powerful our God is. And it's going to enable us to renew our allegiance to Jesus Christ as our king. And we're just going to dive right in and we're going to start at verse 5, which we covered last week, so we can get the full flow of thought. So here, just to refresh your memory in Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet. God called him to deliver messages to Judah specifically, mainly, but also Israel. The kingdom was divided at this point so that they would understand the calamity that was about to befall them, so that they would understand that they had broken their covenant with God and the discipline that God had laid out, the punishments he had laid out were about to come into effect. God did not want them to misunderstand the trouble that was about to come upon them. And so here Isaiah is carrying out his duty and he's bringing this word from the Lord. But on, on this occasion, he's turning his gaze toward Assyria, the foreign nation that God would use to discipline Israel. So verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger... The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So we'll stop there as we begin. What we're meant to notice here and what Israel was meant to notice originally was that the king of Assyria had no intentions and desires to fulfill God's will whatsoever. He did not intend or think any of the things that God intended and thought. What was laid out for us in verses 5 and 6 had no correspondence with what was going on in the king of Assyria's mind and in his heart in verse 7. He had his own intentions. He had his own thoughts. God meant to purify his people. The king of Assyria meant to expand his empire. Two completely different goals, two completely different intentions. Now point this out. So that we will see and notice that God, in bringing about his will here, did not override the king's freedom. So this gets at one of the biggest theological puzzles that Christians have wrestled with forever. We talked about it at length on Wednesday night. We meet on Wednesdays here at 6 to work out the scripture from Sunday. And we talked about God's sovereignty, the fact that he's in control, 
and man's free will, the fact that we genuinely do have the freedom to make meaningful decisions. And here we see that they're both true at the same time. God didn't reach down into the king of Assyria's heart and remove his intentions for world conquest and replace them with God's intentions to discipline Israel. He did not override his freedom at all. The king's independent desires remained intact as he made his free decisions to go after Israel. God did not take after take over the king of Assyria like someone playing a video game takes over the character on the screen. The king was just doing what he wanted to do. Now this is fascinating if we'll stop and just think about it. Well, let's reframe it in terms of our presence here in this parking lot this morning. I can say, based on scriptural authority, that you are here because God brought you here. God and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his preordained, predestined, grand plan brought you here for his purposes, his intentions, his motives, and his reasons. Now, those may be manifold. He likely brought you here to glorify himself by expanding your perception of him. He likely brought you here to use you to have an effect on the others who are here in your conversations with them. He, like, he may have brought you here to convict you of some sin that's in your life because he loves you and he's, he's wanting to clear that out of the way and bring you closer to him. There's many different things that he is up to right now, but I can say confidently that you're here because he brought you here. But I can also say that you are here because you freely chose and made a series of decisions that you were independent and allowed to make that brought you here. So you chose to set your alarm last night, maybe. You chose to get up when you could have stayed in the bed. You chose to get dressed when you could have stayed in your pajamas. You chose to leave the house when you could have stayed there with your cup of coffee. You chose to drive past 15 other churches to this specific church. You, you made all those decisions, that's true and real. They're both true at the same time, somehow. God brought you here, and you brought you here. This is the same way for the king of Assyria. God picked up the king of Assyria like a dad picking up a paddle and used him to bring about his will. The king of Assyria woke up and said, I'm going to continue my conquest and go conquer Israel with complete obliviousness to the fact that God had purposes in it. Your motives may not align with God's. They may even contradict God's. But God brings about his will through our free, independent decisions. And that's just mind-boggling. It's amazing. It's, it, it, it melts your brain to try to understand it. God carried out his intentions through the king of Assyria's completely different intentions. And this isn't the first time this happened. The classic biblical example of this came up Wednesday night is Joseph in the book of Genesis. A, a large part of the second half of Genesis is given over to Joseph's story. <coughs> Excuse me. So Joseph, you know, the coat of many colors, uh, his brothers did not like him. His brothers hated him. And so one day, his father sent him out to the field to check on his brothers, and his brothers saw him coming, and they said, here comes this jerk. He has these dreams that he's so great. Let's just throw him in this pit over here. 
Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, intending to get rid of him, get rid of a nuisance. Then they kind of felt bad, and so they brought him out of the pit and sold him into slavery. Again, their intentions were to get rid of a nuisance, to be rid of this kid who thought he was so much better than them. That was what they chose to do. They had the freedom to do it. They made those decisions based on bad motives and bad intentions. They made bad decisions. But at the same time, God was controlling all of that to bring about good. He was strategically placing Joseph in Egypt in preparation for a time of famine when he would bring his family in, forgive them and bring them in to Egypt where they would have what they needed and be taken care of. He sums it up beautifully in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He's reconciling with his brothers. His brothers are thinking he's definitely going to kill us because Joseph had arisen to a place of, of high power in Egypt. And Joseph, being one of God's children, looks at them with mercy and forgives them and says in verse 20 of Genesis 50, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. You truly did. That was you. Those were your free decisions, and you made them, and they were evil. But God was not absent. He was not powerless. He was not ignorant of it. He also was at work in it, and he meant it for good. So here, back in Isaiah 10, the king of Assyria meant what he was doing for what we know to be evil. He did what he was doing to expand his empire because he thought he was awesome. God meant it for good to purify his people. The passage ends in verses 8 and 9 uh, on through 11 with a glimpse inside the king of Assyria's heart. And let's read what it says. In verse 8, we see that he actually considered himself to be a king of kings. He was so arrogant. For he says, are not all my commanders kings? The king of Assyria had been quite successful in his conquest. And so he had under his command kings. Kings were his commanders. That may have been literal. He might have had conquered kings and then absorbed them into his army. And they were now commanding his forces and doing his bidding. Or it might have been figuratively speaking. His commanders were as royal and regal as the kings of any of these paltry little kingdoms that he was about to roll over. Either way, he saw himself as a king of kings. He had been super successful in his campaign so far. Verse 9, we see that to the king of Assyria, Israel's capital city was just another city like all the others that he had already destroyed. Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? All these are cities geographically leading toward Israel, Samaria being the capital of Israel. He's saying, aren't they just all the same? I've already conquered all these cities. This is just going to be another city. I'm going to conquer it the same as I did all the others. And furthermore, as we read verses 10 and 11, we see that he not only saw the capital of Israel just like any old city, he saw the God of Israel just like any old God, just like the worthless idols that he had already defeated in his conquest so far. Verse 10, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, the no-gods, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? 
So here we see the king of Assyria had no concept of Israel's God whatsoever. No idea that Israel's God was not represented by images and physical objects like these other pagan nations. He just thought, well, here's another city, destroy it. I'm sure they have their local gods just like all these other cities. I'll defeat them too. No big deal. I'm unstoppable. I'm the king of Assyria. That was his mindset as he progressed. So what are we supposed to do with all this? I am stopping there. Next week, we'll continue the line of thinking and see that God was going to hold this king of Assyria accountable for his freely made decisions, even though God was using those to bring about his will. But that's next week's message. What are we supposed to do with this here, August 2nd, 2020, Charlotte, North Carolina, as Christians? I have three points of application to share with you, and they're pretty straightforward and pretty brief. First, one thing I think that we should take from this is simply to remember and see how interesting our God is. Just remember how interesting our God is. We are all theologians as Christians, growing in our knowledge and understanding of God who is infinitely complex, infinitely glorious, infinitely majestic. We'll never get to the end of learning more of his manifold glories and perfections. And this is just one little glimpse into it. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And doing what we're doing here this morning is part of that. Contemplating these, these mysteries that are on the edge and the perimeter of our ability to understand. I bring this up as a point of application because I suspect that you're a lot like me and that we are way too easily satisfied in our knowledge of God. We kind of have him in our minds as a, a kindly grandpa in the sky. It's a comforting presence in our life. We know he's good. We know he's a big deal. You know, we're thankful that we're not going to go to hell because of Jesus. And then we just kind of live our lives. But being reconciled to God, the God, the one true God, the God of the universe means that we're now brought into a relationship with him. We get to come to know him and grow in our knowledge of him. And he is infinitely interesting. I think often we, we grow bored with him. And we may just need to push past that and discipline ourselves to think. To think about these things. Think about him. To turn off the TV and the phone and let thoughts of God and who he is and his attributes and his mysteries fill our minds. It's one of the greatest joys in life. It's one that non-Christians can't do, but it's available for us. How can God be fully sovereign in control and yet we be really free? How can that be? How can God be one, one God, yet also be three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can this be? Have you got that figured out? I certainly do not. How can God be eternal? How can there be anything that had no beginning and will have no end? How can something exist apart from how we understand time to work? It's mind-blowing. There's no end to considering and meditating on the glories of God. 
So that's the first application. Just remember how interesting our God is. The second, and I think this is more true to what the passage is intended to bring about. Remember how powerful God is. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You think about your powerlessness that you feel when you watch the news and you see world leaders, our nation's leaders making the decisions they make and you can't do anything about it. And you can vote or you can protest and you can post on Facebook and you can forward memes, but ultimately you really don't have power. But God wields the hearts of kings like a child playing in a pool of water. He is so very powerful. And we know as Christians that he is committed to our good. In the New Testament in Romans, it says, he who gave his son for us, what good would he withhold from us? There's nothing good he would hold back from us if he gave Jesus Christ for us. There's so much peace to be found there. Real practically, real, real practical application of this point, don't get upset when you watch the news. And anybody get upset while they watched or read the news this week? Well, you guys are cool as cucumbers out there. I thought that would be more common. Well, good if you are not upset by watching the news. There's no reason to be upset when we watch the news. God is in control even over bad things. Even if he is working out his grand purposes through the opposing in intentions of world leaders, he remains in control. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So while we're watching or reading the news and getting all bent out of shape and fretting, to God it's like a sitcom is on TV. He, he is laughing at the rage and the fury of these kings and world leaders and all their pomp and circumstance. It is no big deal to him. It is all part of his grand plan. It is not out of his control. It is not beyond his scope of power. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And we know who that is referring to ultimately, Jesus Christ, which is the last point of application for us. Let's renew again our allegiance to our King, the true King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Let's let every disquieting news story or event in our life prompt us to renew our allegiance to him. It's so ironic that the King of Assyria thought of himself as a King of Kings. Aren't all my commanders kings? Not realizing that he was serving the true King of Kings all the while. Had no idea. And so I'll close with Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. This is where all of human history is headed. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this weekly recalibration to reality. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. By your mercy and grace, through the forgiveness he purchased on the cross, those who repent of their sins and believe in him for salvation and commit their lives to him as their Lord get to be pardoned and welcomed into his kingdom. And we live through these tumultuous days while many around us are fretting and wringing their hands at peace. Or let us be at peace as we remember the true King of Kings. Let us be in awe this week as we think about your glories and your perfections. Let us use our freedom of choice and decision to make decisions that bring you honor and glory. We want to align our decisions with your intentions. We want to live as citizens of the kingdom of God under King Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.